HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. I'm Tim Gunn, author, educator, and Project Runway mentor, and you're listening to Heritage Radio. Welcome to another episode of Magnifico Radio, the weekly podcast featuring conversations in ethical fashion, clean beauty, and sustainable living. This is our third season on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kate Black. Each week, I sit down with designers, makers, and leaders at the forefront of sustainability to discuss their journeys and motivation. This podcast is an extension of my blog, Magnifico.com, and that's Magnifico.com, and my book also called Magnifico, Your Head-to-Toe Guide to Ethical Fashion and Non-Toxic Beauty. In previous episodes, we've talked about fashion waste, both pre-consumer, the waste that gets made making our clothes before they become our clothes, and post-consumer, the afterlife of the things that we buy. Today's guest, Rachel Fowler, has a novel solution for the former. Her brand, Tone Lay, is a zero-waste fashion label producing in Cambodia. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you tell us a little bit more about Tone Lay and how it got started? Sure. So Tonle, as you mentioned, is a zero-waste fashion brand. We take remnant materials from larger garment factories act- operating in Cambodia, and we recycle, we upcycle them into beautiful new garments. And through the process, uh, we cut the larger pieces first, like dresses and T-shirts, and the small scraps actually get shredded down into um, yarn and woven into new fabrics. Um, and even smaller scraps left over from that get made into paper. So we literally use every single scrap, and we're actually, because we're using other people's waste, we're actually creating a, a negative waste loop. Um, and I, I started my first iteration of this business almost nine years ago in 2008. Um, I was doing research on a Fulbright grant, actually, on handicrafts and sustainability, and I was inspired to start something that would be a little bit more fashion-forward and contemporary and, um, you know, clothing that I could see myself wearing on a daily basis. We started out uh, in Cambodia with the boutique there. We were selling mostly to the local market as well as to tourists and expats who were in Cambodia. And uh, the business basically grew up from there organically. It was kind of a bootstrapped effort. I had, in the beginning, just a team of four people 
working from home and eventually we opened up a couple other boutiques and a workshop and started to get wholesale clients who were kind of finding us through the stores there and through press. And uh, we actually rebranded that business in 2014 to, to Tonelay, and that's when we implemented the zero waste model. So it was it was definitely a process and a labor of love, and we started selling more um, in the U.S. markets like about about two years ago. So that's that's sort of how we got to where we are today. And you had built. Well, I want to I want to go back to how you ended up in Cambodia, but you had built kind of an ecosystem there of of kind of like minded people, and I don't know if you were all in the same street. I remember I first wrote about it was called Kioj, right? Yes, correct. Um, and I first wrote about you maybe two thousand nine, two thousand ten ish, and then when I was living in Tokyo, we were trying to decide where to go for vacation, and I was really seriously thinking of coming to Phnom Penh because of your store and your boutique, and it looked like you had this kind of community of of change makers happening. Was was that really what was happening, or was that just kind of what the marketing looked like from the outside? No, that's definitely true. I mean, I think what drew me to Cambodia in the first place was that there were there were a lot of people in Cambodia who were trying on, you know, on various different levels and in different ways to find a way to make um, fashion, but also sort of homewares and and home and uh, handicrafts in, in general more sustainable. And you know, particularly I think in the sort of fair trade bent, there were a lot of smaller organizations that were producing things in a more sustainable, more kind to the earth and kind to the people who were making them way in Cambodia than any, uh, than a lot of other countries I had seen. There was, there was a strong contingent of, of those kind of groups. And that's what drew me to Cambodia um, to do research on that, to work with these, these organizations. And the area that we ended up having our first shop in, uh, even just on that street, as you mentioned, it's kind of a hot spot for these sort of brands who were trying to do something different than the typical fashion industry had to offer. And at that time, as you know, in 2008, um, that was when the U.S. and the world sort of hit a big slowdown in the economy. And the market for ethical goods, I think, um, slowed significantly at that time. And there weren't a lot of people, I think, even at that time who even were aware of concept of ethical fashion or you know, eco-fashion was sort of just coming into the public consciousness. So there wasn't a lot, you know, on offer. But in Cambodia, it, it seemed to be sort of a forerunner for for a lot of what you see um, now in the ethical fashion industry. Well, it's true. And I, I always forget about the economy. I always forget about the... Because I lived over in Asia during that time as well. And, I, and when I speak, I'm like, oh, yeah, and Vanity Fair had their green issues. And Vogue had a green issue. And it seemed like a perfect time to start Magnifico. And all eyes seemed to be looking forward for ethical products. Um, and then... Vanity Fair ended the green issue, Vogue ended the green issue, and I, I always forget that that's because North America and, and to some extent Europe fell into this huge recession that, that Asia didn't. So I, I sometimes I'm like, why didn't ethical fashion really take hold? And I just kind of have this amnesia about that. So did you start to look east when you, at that point, like were, were, were you selling in Australia and other, other locations further east? Well, I moved to Cambodia in 2008, so I basically moved mid-2008 and before any of that really happened. And it kind of hit, you know, right as I was starting my business. And so I didn't feel the effect because I was basically building a business during the recession. I didn't know what building a a business out of the recession would be like. And there were even, there were boutiques around me in Cambodia who were saying, oh, you know, 
we had so many more tourists last year. We had so much more business. People aren't spending as much money. So I think because of the tourist industry is because the tourist industry is so important to those types of businesses in Cambodia, it, it definitely was felt in Cambodia as well. And so fast forward to the relaunch, because not only did you relaunch, but you actually um, managed to use everybody's favorite kind of um, branding tool and and um, crowdfunding tool, Kickstarter, to help spread the word about the relaunch and then to kind of make some money to help you um, in this transition. And I... I'm really impressed because the video that you did when you were rebranding was phenomenal. It's not surprising you hit your target in four days, but then you went on to actually kill your target. You did, I don't know, 120% of what you were looking for. So can you talk about how that came to be and, and why you decided to use Kickstarter to, to kind of fund that? Sure. So I had, um, you know, our business, as I kind of mentioned before, it's, been it's pretty scrappy you know we we never received uh-huh, any formal investment um, and so we were just you know building up from Cambodia and so launching in the US um, that was quite an undertaking because we needed a significant amount of money to be able to do that um, for me to basically be able to move back to the US as well I've been living on basically a Cambodian salary so it was a big transition you know an increase in our exp- our monthly budget to be able to do the kind of marketing that we needed to um, you know, we pre- previously had been completely relying on word of mouth, essentially, and wonderful blogs and press <laughs> like you. Um, and, and that, you know, that took us so far, um, but we had to really invest in actually bringing our brand to the next level as well as, as our marketing and kind of getting the word out there. So we decided to use Kickstarter because I think it's a really great way to, as you mentioned, not only raise money, but also to spread awareness, you know, and, and people, it, it activates people to feel like they're part of your success. And I think that, and it's true, they are part of your success. And I think that you can really build, you can build a really key, uh, a really keyed in audience through it, you know, where people are really excited to help you and, and grow. And I think throughout my years of being in Cambodia, I had a number of people that I knew Lots of people would reach out and say, I want to help, I want, I want to support what you're doing, and we didn't really necessarily have a way to have them you know, participate in that. And then Kickstarter is a really great way to bring them in and make them a participant in your success. And I think that you know, the team effort of building something like Tonle you know, is so much more meaningful because so many people have contributed to success, and I think that Kickstarter is a really public and wonderful way to bring people into that. And so now in the rebrand, I read that you have a team of 50, you have retail stockists in 10 countries, four of, do you still have four of your own boutiques? Well, at the moment we have just one in Cambodia and then we also do uh, stock at other, a couple other boutiques in Cambodia. Um, and then we also are doing a, a shop, a pop-up shop in San Francisco at, at the moment. Oh, you are? Where? Uh, it's in the inner Richmond. It's uh, in a space called William the Beekeeper, and we're we've started taking over part of the store and are pushing, you know, putting out more Tonley products there and kind of just redesigned the space for a two month period. It's so funny because you said earlier, and I, and um, because you're on the phone, we kind of you made a pun that I was commenting on. So when you call yourself a scrappy business, is that because you're upcycled and and refashioning from scraps? Oh, that's really funny. Um, <laughs> when I say scrappy, I mean like, you know, just that we haven't taken on formal investment, that we just, um, you know, built everything more organically. And 
we don't have a we have a small marketing budget. We rely a lot on word of mouth. That we rely a lot on you know our very wonderful and committed and supportive um, customers who really help us get the word out there. So you know it's it's somewhat of a labor of love. It hasn't ever been easy, um, but there's a lot of amazing people that work with us. You know both from the customer perspective, our mentors, our uh, our friends and family and team um, who have really helped to make this happen. So I think it's it's very much been a great team effort and, um, you know, taken a lot of love to get it to where it is. And let's talk a little bit about um, the, the kind of the consumer side. What's some of the myths that, that you've noticed that people have about upcycling or zero waste clothing? Like, what are some of the roadblocks that you're trying to, to kind of overcome when you're positioning this brand as a, as a zero waste company? I think it's I think it's really tough in the current market because there are starting to be a lot of people who are talking about ethical fashion, about sustainable fashion, and you know when you dig into what they're saying, it's sort of to varying degrees, I would say, but it's confusing for the customers because I think there are starting to be more people who want to support, you know, something different than the conventional fashion industry. But at the same time, there's a lot of mixed messaging going on about what ethical and sustainable and fair trade and green really mean. Um, and so I find it's challenging with people, you know, customers actually starting to say, you know, I want to support this, but I don't even know how to, to weave through all of this, you know, marketing jargon that's out there, basically. Um, and there are some amazing sustainable fashion brands who are doing great stuff. And And then, you know, there's other people who I think are maybe doing it to a certain extent, but not to the same extent. So I think one really challenging thing is that even when you can get customers to want to buy into this, um, to be able to really communicate clearly but not overwhelm them with information at the same time is a challenging, I think, balancing act. Um, so I think there is, there's starting to be more awareness. Um, you know, I think also people are expecting... You know, people, customers are expecting the same level of service and quality and style and ethics and everything else that they get from a mainstream fashion brand, but they also want it to be ethical. They also want it to be sustainable. And that's really challenging, I think, to compete because, of course, we, as a small company, just, we don't have the budget to do the things that large companies can. And we also have to try to not cut corners and do everything ethically at the same time while still offering something at a similar price point. So sometimes I think customers' expectations are pretty are pretty high, and that, that can be challenging to meet when you're trying to balance all these things. And, you know, conventional fashion is, is highly exploitative. So how can you compete with that when, you know, there's a reason why that's, it's so exploitative, and that's because it's profitable to do it that way. So how can you compete um, with that while trying to maintain your ethics and trying to keep up the same sort of customer service standards of quality and design and style and marketing at the same time. Yeah, it's true. That's totally not what I thought you were going to say. I actually thought we were going to have a conversation about this idea about waste and dirt and, and, you know, kind of this idea about trying to get the consumer to think about waste as a good thing. Um, And I didn't know we were going to dive into greenwashing, but I'm happy to get in the pool with you. But I just need to take a quick break. So hold on, everybody. We'll be right back. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. 
Chef's Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chef's Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chef's Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chef's Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. And we're back. You're listening to Magnifico Radio, and I'm your host, Kate Black. And today I'm talking to Rachel Fowler from Tonely. And we're going to have a little deeper conversation about greenwashing. So um, when I was putting together some of the research for this interview, Rachel, I was looking at recycling and how it's become like really a rallying cry in the apparel industry. What do you think the consumer feels or what do you think the consumer is getting confused about with all of this talk about recycling and nobody kind of doing what you do, which is really being a zero, um, like a zero, not only zero waste, but your, what did you say? Negative, negative impact? Yeah. I mean, it is almost negative waste because we are actually re- reducing waste created by other people and we're recycling every single scrap of our own. So how do you think the consumer, like, because I don't think the consumer can rate in their mind. I don't even think that they can wrap their head around circular economy and recycling um, f- at this kind of level and particularly at the level that you're doing it. So where do you, th- what, where do you think the consumer is going to be in a year or two years? Like, when are they going to get it? Well, I think, let me just take a step back really quick and, and address the issue of these larger brands that are starting to talk about recycling. Um, I think that, you know, so, so we're seeing some brands, for example, H&M, are starting to do a program where they collect the garments that they, they have that, that are going to waste, and then they, they transform them into something else. And I, while I do think on some level that's admirable, I think there's a really big problem with the fundamental model of H&M and other fast fashion companies which generate all this waste in the first place, and that they generate clothing that cannot last for a long time. And, and so if you start from a position of making really cheap clothing, building an entire business model on that's unsustainable, and then saying, okay, now we're going to recycle like a tiny portion of what we've generated, but we're not going to do anything to fix the fundamental problems in our business model. I, I have a huge issue with that. And I think also that by doing this, sort of small percentage, you know, they're, they're sort of doing a small conscious collection. And the conscious collection, what it does is it basically allows customers who shop at H&M to feel better about shopping at H&M. But it doesn't make a difference, really, in the long run to the much greater problem of all the unsustainable problems that they also produce. So for me, I look at that and I'm a little bit, I'm a little skeptical because I think, I I applaud the effort, and I think it's good that they're making an effort, but if they're not going to address the fundamental challenges in their supply chain, then it just seems like marketing to me, and it's just a way to get more people in the door. So. It, and we've talked about this on, like on the show. We've had designers talk about like that kind of designer guilt. We haven't really delved into um, consumer guilt, although we have had some conversations about um, fast fashion addiction. But 
but there's times where like when I when I'm kind of um, in a heated conversation with somebody, I would liken it to McDonald's serving salads, right? Like it doesn't it doesn't change the fundamental issue about what McDonald's is producing just because they serve a side salad, right? Correct. So so yeah. so you and I are on the same page around that, and I think that I think that. Um, yeah, I actually didn't think that this conversation was going to end here either. But I think that that's one of the other challenges about a brand like you, who who is really working fundamentally at shifting something. And you're not the only one. Um, I was at in Stockholm H and M. Surprisingly, um, their foundation has a million dollar euro um, giveaway for innovators in the field. And one of the winners last year has created um, created a technology aspect that can map out where all the waste scraps that you that that Tonley would use where they're where they're falling in the production so that brands can recoup them themselves and and integrate zero waste right into their own um, production lines and into their own supply chain which I thought uh-huh. was really revolutionary but but not at 150 billion garments per year like I, I think that I think that those ideas and those concepts are great but that the churn and the amount that the industry is producing is is so fundamentally worth discussing and examining that that all of these other things are kind of I don't know. I think they're a little bit um, distracting. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, for, for Tonlang, you know, although we we recycle approximately 20,000 pounds of material a year, and that sounds like a large volume, but when you consider how much is being wasted, the scale on which it's being wasted, um, it, it's such a small fraction. And I think that in some ways our position, I don't know if we'll ever be big enough to actually make a huge dent in the industry, but... I do think that what's important about what we do is that essentially a brand, our brand is a voice. And it's, it's a way, it's, it's using the marketing to get the idea out there that, hey, we, not only do we need to try to prevent this waste from happening, but, I mean, not only do we need to figure out a way to recycle this waste, but we also need to figure out a way to prevent it from happening. And I think that brands like us existing show the larger companies that it's possible to do that. And it also shows the customer that it's possible to do that. And I hope that in the long run that, you know, sort of us being there and other brands out there who are really doing it 100%, even if we don't make a big profit, even if we don't grow to be huge, that, you know, we can prove to people that this is possible and that hopefully that will, you know, pressure consumers to, you know, demand more of the companies that they shop from. Well, it's true, and it, it, it's such an interesting model because it's it's local, it's on the ground, it's um, like it's it's acting locally, even though thinking globally. Wouldn't it be great if you got a huge grant or some huge funding to actually set this up in other major manufacturing countries, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Peru, like to just really kind of replicate this business model? Do you have the capacity to do that? Um, I mean, we've been looking at different ways to raise money to do that, and I think that the challenging thing with raising money in any form, you know, whether it's a grant, if it's investment, there's always strings attached, and I think you have to look, make sure that, for me, that if we raise money and try to grow, that we don't compromise, you know, anything from our mission in the process. And, you know, I think there, of course, at different, cha- you know, sizes of a business, and as you grow, there's always changes that you need to make. That don't necessarily mean you're compromising, you're just changing and adapting. But I do want to be really careful about, you know, how we grow and make sure that 
we're not just growing for growth's sake. And I think that when you raise investment, for example, there is a strong pressure to grow. And we've seen we've seen some really um, public failures of really amazing companies because they raised money and you know they got a lot of pressure to grow too quickly and they were unable to you know stay true to who they were as a company. So that's my kind of. You know, yes, I think there could be a lot of impact and scale, but at the same time, I want to do that in a thoughtful way. And are you an accidental entrepreneur? Like, uh, I read also in the background when I was researching for you that you studied at Maryland Institute College of Art. You were going to be clearly something else when you grew up. Um, So, or were you always going to be an entrepreneur? Well, I think that I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. So I've been an artist from a young age. I was always interested in textiles, but I knew that the fashion industry had a lot of problems. I think when I was young, you know, sort of being surrounded by the sweatshop controversies of the 90s and, and then also the sort of punk rock DIY movement influenced me a lot. I, I loved making my own clothing, but I knew that I didn't want to go into fashion, I thought. <laughs> And it wasn't really until I was in Cambodia in 2008, or I was in Cambodia in 2007 actually visiting, that I was exposed to the sort of fair trade movement that was going on with handicrafts and fashion and inspired that I kind of had this light bulb moment of, well, you know, people aren't going to stop buying clothes. And if we want to change the fashion industry, we can't just stand on the outside and say, hey, that's bad. We need to do something. We need to create a better solution. Um, and I do, I do believe in being solution-oriented rather than, I mean, I, I will go to a protest, but I also think if you're going to protest, you need to pr- provide solutions. You need to propose solutions. So I thought, well, I can make things and I can weave and knit and dye, and why not contribute that to something that, you know, could create real change. So I was, then I w- went back to, a, I applied for the Fulbright Grant, did, was doing research, and I met a group of women in Cambodia who were, being encouraged by basically social workers at a hospital to start a business, but they didn't really want to start a business. They, they just wanted to work in, you know, in a safe place with good conditions, with good benefits, and be able to go home and hang out with their families at night and not have to stress about running a business. So they sort of said, oh, can you just stay in Cambodia and help us run this? And I, I said, okay, and I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but it ended up being... You know, it was incredibly meaningful work. I loved working with this incredible group of people, and I couldn't have been more happier doing it. So it was it was really, you know, something that I didn't picture myself doing. But at the same time, you know, every new challenge rises to, the, you know, to meet the next. And I think you you learn as you go along, and you just have to, you know, take it step by step. And that's really what a lot of this journey has been about. That's amazing. And so I think you probably just answered, but I was going to say, what, so what advice would you have for somebody who's like listening to this and like, yes, I'm going to be the change. I'm going to create something. What, what do you, in hindsight, what do you wish somebody had told you? Don't forget to. Yes, I think, okay. So there's two things that I would always say to new, you know, especially up and coming designers. I think first, you don't have to start something yourself. There's a lot of amazing endeavors out there. And I think if you want to start your own brand, that's great. But I think first go and see what you can contribute to that already exists and use your talents to build up the structures and systems that already are there. Because I see so many little brands pop up, shut down really quickly because they don't have the resources that they need. They don't have the network that they need. 
And and in many cases, a lot of designers they really just want to design. They don't necessarily want to be running a business. And I would say only five percent of what I do is design. The rest is really business management. So. You know, ask yourself too if you really want to be running a business or if you want to do design. If you want to do design, there are great organizations out there in the world who could really use your help, especially internationally. Because if you're willing to go overseas and work with some of these small manufacturers, you would have the opportunity to do design work that you probably would would not get to do in the U.S. if you're just coming out of college, for example.、Um, and then the second thing is. Your community and the people around you are so important, and I cannot emphasize enough how much you know you will need to depend on people around you and know your strengths and know what you're not good at and know when to ask for help and don't be afraid to ask for the help that you need. I think early on I tried to do way too many things by myself, and there were so many things looking back at now that if I just asked someone for help, they would have been first of all happy to help me to be a part of that success, like I mentioned. Um, and to be a part of our mission and what we're doing, and I just had to ask for it. And I tried to do so many things on my own that I could have easily, you know, sort of looked at what was already working or not working for other people, and learned from that rather than, you know, trying to duplicate all these efforts that had already happened. So yes,、yeah, I think surrounding yourself with the right people, whether that be staff members, partners, mentors, friends, and community. And even and customers, clients, and also just learn first before you feel like you have to set out and do something on your own. That's such great advice. That's one of the reasons why I created Eco Sessions too, because I didn't want people to feel alone, and I didn't want them to feel like they were recreating the wheel. So I wanted to, I wanted a place where people、yeah. could come together, share their experiences, share resources, kind of. Because I feel like a lot of people who are mission driven get kind of a little bit myopic, so they really、yeah. want to make change, and then they just kind of put their head down and start working really hard without kind of lifting their head up and taking a look at to see what resources and and who's already kind of. Cracked a little bit of this wheel, and and who's kind of already done some work in this area, and be a little bit more collaborative so that we can advance the industry faster. Such good yeah, exactly.、Advice. I mean that's. That's so. That's so correct, and I, I, I think I see that again and again with these, you know, small brands that are coming up. And it, this industry is just—it's really, really hard. I've seen a lot of failure, a lot of churn, businesses, and even businesses that have been around for eight or ten years, and they're like, you know, we haven't made money the entire time, and we're shutting down. And you're like, what? I thought this brand was so successful, and we need to support each other because it's—it's it's not easy to do this. You're working against the grain, and It's too easy to kind of be like, I need my brand to do X, Y, and Z, and really, you know, you. I guess in one way, it's, it's also asking yourself, what is your real goal in this? Are you doing it because you want to start your own brand and you want the success, or because you really want to contribute to something bigger? And I think there's a bit of a balance of both because it's important in fashion. Of course, it's important to create your own brand, and <laughs> you know that's part of being able to get these products out there and sell them. But I think. We need to help each other a lot more. Absolutely, and we need to recognize that the consumer doesn't want it to be difficult to find. Like I, I had the biggest kind of aha moment a couple months ago. I feel like I was on the Reformation website, and I saw that they're cross-selling some Patagonia pieces, and I was like, oh, of course they are, because it's the same audience. Of course they are, because it makes it easier if the customer can find what they're looking for. So I,、mm-hmm. I'm now just thinking collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. Like as many. Times as we can. That's why I like that you're doing. 
having this pop up with um, William the Beekeeper. Is that what it's called? Yes, that's right. Okay. Um, because I just think we need to now recognize that the consumer is out there. She or he wants to, to buy these products. We just have to make it easier. Okay, so I started this new thing in season three where I have three quick questions. So my first one for you, Rachel Fowler. If your life had a, mo- mo- a motto, what would it be? Uh, my motto would be, uh, be kind always. Really? Nice. Yeah. You're, the, you're actually the second. This is the second time I posed this question, and that's the second time somebody has said kindness as their answer. Um, oh, wow. So maybe we're all, <laughs> this is going to be a very interesting kind of season test, I think. Okay. Second question Who or what inspires you? I think my biggest inspiration is my, my staff and my team at Tonle. Um, I think they're just the ones that keep me going every day doing this. I, every time I'm in Cambodia, working with them it just fills my heart with so much joy and inspiration um because they're just so resilient and and so incredible and you know when i look at them and i think about just the lives of the garment factory workers that are making these clothing you know these cheap clothes that we buy every day um and how you know if i think if people really understood the real people behind the clothing that they they own and and buy they they would probably feel very differently about how they um, bought, bought fashion. Well, that, yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. Okay. And the last question, what's next on your bucket list? So what are you working towards? Well, I really want to eventually work in other countries with Tonle. So I, we touched on this a little bit earlier, whether we could do that through raising funding, but I think, um, I would love to be able to take this model and bring it to other places, whether that be through partnering with other existing companies and trying to use the scraps that they're already generating or working with artisans um, with traditional processes and incorporating contemporary materials. Um, But I I, I would love to be able to continue to travel, continue to learn, and and hopefully, you know, do do more work like this in, in other countries as well. Oh my gosh. Okay. So let's imagine that everybody is woke after this um, podcast ser- episode. Where can they find Tonelay products? So we uh, sell at Tonelay.com uh, through e-commerce. And if you go to our uh, stockist page under our website, there's also a, you can see a list of all the stores that carry our products if you want to co- go and see them in person. Um, and you can also find out more about us through our social media handle, Tonelay Divine. So on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Great. And for the people with money and donors and people who want to collaborate with you, where can they reach you directly? Uh, they can reach out to me at by email at Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at Tonelay.com. That's T-O-N-L-E. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. It's been lovely so much, to Kate. catch up really with pleasure. you. I know. <laughs> nice to talk to you. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you to the Heritage Radio Network. You can find and subscribe to Magnifico Radio on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you like what you hear, kindly give us a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts and also a rating. It helps us rank higher amongst conventional fashion podcasts and to push these conversations forward. Have a question, want to be a sponsor, or recommend a guest, you can email me directly at radio at magnifico, M-A-G-N-I-F-E-C-O dot com. And want to learn more about zero waste fashion and upcycling, plus hundreds of other stories, visit magnifico.com. Until next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.